What's up, everyone? This is Justin Gordon from Vitalize Venture Capital, and welcome to Talking Venture, a show where you'll learn how to build and invest in startups, featuring interviews with startup founders and operators, angel investors and venture capitalists, as well as deep dives into a variety of aspects of the startup world from the team here at Vitalize. On today's episode, we have Ryan Haynes, co-founder and CTO of Osmosis, a company whose mission is to empower the world's clinicians and caregivers with the best learning experience possible. You can find more at osmosis.org. They have a comprehensive library of 1,800 plus videos, around 2 million subscribers on YouTube, and are backed by Graycroft, Felicious Ventures, and other incredible VCs. Let's dive in. Ryan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. And I talked to Shiv a while back about Osmosis in 2019 on the Just Go Grind podcast and now having you on our new show at Vitalize. For people who aren't familiar with Osmosis, what is the company doing today, Ryan? Sure. Um, so I can answer that in, in two parts, uh, what Osmosis is as a product and, and how Osmosis sees itself as a company. Um, so Osmosis as a product is a video learning platform for health professionals in fields like medicine, nursing, PA, physician assistance, uh, so allied health professions. Uh, we're used by both students directly as a supplemental resource for their classes and also as schools uh, by schools as a part of their curriculum. Um, and so that second part kind of goes into how Osmosis sees itself as a company. Uh, so we're on a mission to modernize and optimize higher education, starting with healthcare. Uh, specifically because uh, the volume of what you need to learn in healthcare is already immense and the rate at which new knowledge in the biomedical sciences uh, is growing is, is, uh, is extremely, extremely rapid. Um, so when we started Osmosis, my co-founder Shiv Gigani and I were, uh, were med students. So the experience of drinking from a fire hose of knowledge was very real for us. Um, and one of the things we said is if we can create an efficient way to learn something that's as fast as medicine, um, then then that's a pretty good starting point for turning students into better learners in general. And I know from the, the last interview, again, that it took uh, a little bit of time, obviously, to get things rolling. But like, take me through then, you had this idea for this company, how did you end up launching it? What was that first thing you did in terms of getting the word out about this? Because you can go a lot of different ways with this. Some people may argue like it's a content company at the starting point. It's like you could just start creating some videos on YouTube. Like how did you actually end up like what's your go to market strategy initially for the company? Yeah, you know, and as, as first time founders and, you know, really you know, students, you know, we, at the time we weren't thinking uh, when we first started Osmosis, we weren't even thinking, oh, this is a company. Uh, we didn't even know, really fully know the answer to that question. Right. So like Osmosis started um as an idea when shiv and i just had finished anatomy uh we were about uh we had an eight, eight week anatomy course we were about two weeks out of that when shiv asked me a question about what nerve innervated um a, a part of the foot uh basically you know how, how the foot manages to lift itself up uh so two weeks before i would have known the answer to that question you know without hesitation you know we all had memorized you know every detail about the body I could not come up with the name of, of that nerve. Um, and as we started talking about other things, there were lots of things that we realized that we'd forgotten. And at first, you know, Shiv and I were kind of like, oh, is, it, is it us? <laughs> you know, are, are we not able to remember things? And so we, we asked five of our friends um, and only one of them. So four out of the five had forgotten, you know, the same stuff. Um, and so we started doing some research, you know, Shiv and I both have, have backgrounds in research um, and, we did a lit review and kind of found papers that showed that up to 50% of what is taught in the first two years of med school is lost. Um, and it's kind of our first reaction to that is, is you know, wow, what a, what a waste, you know, both in terms of time. And that's a lot of money spent training someone. Um, med school tuition is, is definitely not cheap. Um, but then this, the second thing we kind of thought is that that's, that's scary, you know, for someone to be told, well, your doctor is going to forget 50% of, of what they're taught. Um, and someone can, can argue that um, you don't have to know everything that you're taught, right? You just have to know that specific part of, of, of your field of practice. But how do you know that there's not that, you know, one insight where you see, you know, that one in 200 case where you need to remember that, that particular fact? Um, and I think that's when we started saying, okay, how is osmosis? How could we create something that helps people remember? Like that, was, that was the core idea. Um, and so we started building a platform around cognitive science of learning. Uh, that was the first version of osmosis. Pretty soon after that, we realized that we needed content. Um, so it wasn't enough to kind of aggregate other content or 
um, you know, built you know, a small question bank, which is what Osmosis started as. And around that time, we met Rishi Desai, who was at the Khan Academy, um, creating flipped classroom videos. And that's when we started saying, hey, we could create flipped classroom videos for medicine. And that's what kind of started the YouTube channel. So from there, we kind of went to market as a video learning platform. Um, and so that's kind of the, the trajectory. It very much evolved. It wasn't, you know, a, a, an idea that was fully born when we, when we first started. <laughs> and at that time then, so the video learning platform, essentially, what did you see as the business model initially? I know you didn't even, you didn't even see it as a company initially. You're like, oh, we just have this idea. You want to make it better for people to learn. But what was that model, at least then back then at that point in time of, around the business? Yeah, so when we when we first decided to take time off, um, we applied to an incubator, Dream It Health, um, and you know, that was kind of the the first step in the evolution of Osmosis becoming a company. We said, okay, we've worked on this as students as for for a year, just as a side project. Now maybe we want to have employees, right? Um, and so that jumping into that next step, uh, you know, working working with an incubator, getting our first funding allowed us to start thinking about a business model and our, and our first model, um, you know, we, we were, we were very naive. We, our first model was, oh, we're going to, we're going to go directly to schools and sell them this great new idea about how to revolutionize medical education. Um, obviously the first thing a school is going to ask is, you know, does it really work? You know, what's your track record? You know, you're, you're just, you're coming from, from just a single school. Um, and also the sales cycles on for B2B. Uh, are very, very long. And fortunately for us, we had really good advisors who very rapidly pointed that out to us. And we said, okay, we're going to have to start with a B2C business model. Um, we know that students really like this. Even when we were at Hopkins, we had students from other schools contacting us, trying to, to get onto the platform, even before it was a company. Um, so we said, we can sell directly to students who want a supplemental resource for learning. And once we have that, you know, kind of our foot in the door in B2C and have revenue, um, then we can, we can do the B2C to B2B upsell, uh, go to the, go to the schools and say, Hey, your students are using it. In a lot of cases, the students would go to faculty and say, osmosis is awesome. Um, why don't you reach out to these guys that allowed us to kind of get our foot in the door with B2B and then, then the B2B, uh, side of the business model kind of evolved. There's so much to dive into with that. So I want to get into the, the learning side of it. There's also a, a lot to go back to, but okay. On the learning side of it. So you, knowing that you went direct to consumer with this initially, you don't have to deal with a long sales cycle. You can get immediate feedback essentially as well. With that, as you're creating these videos and helping people and educating people, how did you track along the way? Like, is it actually working? Like, is it, what's the efficacy of this? Like, how are people learning on this compared to something else? Like, how did you go about that tracking part, part of it? And I know like, you're on the technical side as well. You're the CTO. So like, what went into that on the back end as well? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different things you can you can look at. I mean, one of the first things that we discovered, I mean, when we started, we were very idealistic and we wanted to put all of this, you know, kind of cognitive science, uh, all of these ideas into a platform that everyone can use. What we realized very soon after that is, is the most important thing is that people actually use the product. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just, you know, people need to show up. Um, and so, you know, some of the, the key metrics, uh, aside from, you know, daily active use or things like net promoter score, you know, are people really, are they finding the value? Because people can, can pretty accurately self-assess. I'm using this platform. It made my life easier for this exam. And that's, that's what they started saying very quickly after that. Um, and so then beyond that, you know, then you can start working with schools to, to actually correlate you know, does, does this improve exam scores? Does this lower stress before the exam, things like that. But they're really the early metrics are, are, are people using the platform and, and are they finding value in it? And with that as well, obviously you're creating content. That's how you're doing this is through the content side of it. And there's, there's more than just the content, I think at this point, but with the content piece of it as well, you said you, you partnered up with someone uh, on that, who actually had a lot of experience with, with Khan Academy, which is a tremendous program as well. On that, how did you prioritize then where you wanted to attack in terms of which areas of medicine? And you mentioned there's a, a lot of learning that goes into that. There's a lot of different areas. How did you prioritize that side of things? I'm just thinking in my head of like other startups and how they have this grand vision for you know changing the world, but then like, they have to start with one point of it. For you guys at Osmosis, how did you prioritize that? Where'd you start the content? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the saying that when you create a product, you want to create a, a, a painkiller, not a vitamin, right? Um, so you want to find the, the, the biggest pain point in the market. And for us in medicine, um, that's something called the USMLE Step 1. Um, it's an exam that the score of which until recently, which we're actually very happy about this, they've, they've switched it to, to pass-fail so that there's not so much emphasis on this one score. 
but literally this this score would determine your future as a physician um to, to the point of you know whatever whatever percentile rank you have you're making relative to other students determines whether or not you can get into a competitive specialty um and if and if you really want that specialty and you're not able to make that score you literally have to choose a different career um that's that's what the stakes are um and so that level of stress uh, right before that exam is is a perfect place to help students um really where, where, where they need need the most help right and so we focused entirely on the first two years of medical school which is is the prep that you need for step one at the same time um, and now that step one is going past fail i'm really glad we focused on this we decided not to entirely just focus on test prep and focus more broadly on what you need to learn to be a physician um, and that also had a really strong appeal to b2b because i think even before step one went past fail um, or, or that was announced, a lot of B2B schools were getting more and more frustrated with the fact that students were entirely focused on this test and that, that you know, some of the things that are on this test are, is this virus a single-stranded or double-stranded DNA, RNA virus? These aren't things that, you're, that you need at the bedside, right? And a lot of physicians recognize that um, and wanted to move beyond that. Um, and so having that balance of, of what students really needed, but also what faculty were expecting uh, was, was really key early on. On that note as well, with the different content side of things, YouTube versus your platform. Take me through the differences in terms of how you kind of view those different things. And like, because obviously one's more open to the public and I think also is on your platform. It's a little bit different. And there's also no cards and everything as well. Explain those things and how like the different aspects of that uh, for osmosis as well. Yeah. Yeah. So YouTube is, is obviously an excellent video platform, uh, super optimized for that. If you want to go beyond videos though, um, there's, there's not a lot of flexibility. So you need to have some other platform. Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to do, obviously, is, is you know, test students on their knowledge, um, add in certain things like spaced repetition, which is a cognitive science technique to, to improve memory. Um, if you want to add these features, then, then you need a platform um, in order to do that. Um, also, in order to more effectively track usage statistics and performance and what students are at risk in your class for B2B, you, you need a platform. Um, the other thing we, we learned very early on with YouTube is YouTube isn't isn't a, an excellent business model unless you know you're getting uh, you know 100 million subscribers or, or something like that. Um, it's it's much better as a funnel into your platform. So it's a great marketing channel, um, and it definitely helped us raise awareness about osmosis. Uh, and still, a lot of what's on YouTube are videos that are uh, very broadly applicable to the public, not just uh, not just students. Uh, so some of our most popular videos are around uh, mental health or heart disease or, you know, things that are very common conditions uh, in the general public. And a lot of a lot of patients have commented, this is the first time I've, I've understood my condition, uh, which was really, you know, when we started osmosis, the focus was medicine, uh, med medical students, but seeing patients benefit from the videos uh, as well was just that was that was just a tremendous feeling to see that on YouTube. Yeah, you have such a, a opportunity for reach I, at the top of funnel when you look at YouTube, especially with the recommendation algorithm and everything. It's like there's, there's, I mean, few platforms that have that type of possibility as YouTube. And and with that, so with the YouTube versus obviously your own platform, then how do you look at the allocation of resources that go into? Oh, we're gonna make a lot more YouTube videos. We're gonna you know, make more internal because like that's something that comes up again and again with startups. It's just resource allocation. And that's really the name of the game. You get funding, you have a certain amount of money to devote towards building your team. And then if you're looking at your case, like you have content as well as the product itself. I just am curious, take me through like behind, behind the curtain of how you look at that decision of like how you allocate towards YouTube and those platforms for like distribution versus like the internal product side of things. Yeah, I mean, and it was a really, uh, there was a really strong pull early on, especially as we started seeing patients uh, show up on YouTube to create a lot of content on YouTube. Um, and we had to make uh, some kind of hard decisions around, okay, what goes on YouTube versus, you know, what's going to you know, be behind the paywall on the platform. What we really decided ultimately was, you know, we're going to focus on the, the fundamental pathology videos can be on, on platform like YouTube, or they can be outside of the paywall on our platform, which, which they still are. Um, and that allows patients to see what's relevant to them. Whereas the more in-depth, you know, how do you diagnose, how do you treat, uh, what's the, you know, pharmacology around, uh, you know, various drugs that 
could be on on the paid part of the platform. And you, you do at some point, you know, as as altruistic as you want to be, you have to make that decision because the videos are expensive, and you have to be able to. If you want to create a lot of content, you're going to be you're going to have to to monetize that. Um, so that was that was definitely a, a, a challenge for us um, to make that decision. But I think we we have struck the correct balance there. And with the videos being expensive, like you mentioned, I mean, have you had that in house since day one? You work with freelancers because that's something I'm, I've been in the content creation game for a very long time, and it sometimes a mix, sometimes it's in house. Like there's different factors that go into that. For you guys at Osmosis, how has that kind of progressed as you've gone along here? Yeah, we've we've built an entirely in house team. Um, we've been extremely fortunate to have incredibly talented artists, engineers, content creators, script writers to build all of that out. Um, we decided to go in-house mostly because uh, when, we, you know, when we started, we had expertise uh, from, uh, from some of the people coming from, from Khan Academy. So not just Rishi, um, but we had uh, a couple of people join, Kyle Slen, Tanner Marshall, um, who built out the early, uh, the early video style, um, and then helped recruit the, the artists, um, and, and, and then built out the kind of the entire content production engine. Um, one of the things that we've done is invested a lot, uh, in the software around, uh, creating videos. So at some point we decided we're going to create custom software because that's going to help us increase quality. Something that, uh, you know, all our, all our videos are, are handwritten. Uh, so we have this handwriting style. We like to make the videos conversational and feel very, very welcoming. One of the things we discovered very early on is that handwriting ends up being a challenge. Um, so one of our, our people who is actually now in, in charge of, of, of a lot of our video production, a uh, guy named Vince Wolman, uh, early on, he was trying to, to improve his handwriting in order to, to get the job. And Vince actually has a PhD in biochemistry. And he's like, at the end of the day, handwriting is going to be the thing that prevents me from, from you know, getting this job. Uh, even though I can, I can draw, I'm an artist, I have a PhD. Um, so one of the reasons we created the software is so that that, that wouldn't be an issue. Uh, so a lot of the, uh, a lot of the handwritten uh, videos are actually an average of a lot of handwritten characters and things like that. So there's a lot of engineering that goes on behind creating high quality videos at, at a reasonable cost. Yeah, that's that's such a complicated thing to go into with that. I mean, that's the core of your of your business in many ways, obviously, is what that content is. And diving deeper into that educational piece and just thinking more more broadly with that as well, what do you see as kind of the future of education in terms of how we're people are going to be learning? Obviously, everything went remote in the last year because of COVID. You guys were I mean seemingly very well positioned in that regard as well. But how do you see education kind of evolving or opportunities? within it because um, you also have the experience of working directly with consumers as well as you know kind of b2b with schools love to hear your take on where you see it progressing yeah i mean so obviously this last year has been really challenging at, at all levels of, of education uh we're, we're only just beginning to fully understand the impact um outside of the challenges what i'm what i'm hoping is we look back on this 10 years from now and say this was 2020 was the turning point um, it's the point, it's not that, that suddenly we had a ton of new ideas that, that entered the market. It was that the market was ready for the new ideas. Um, and I think that that's, that could be where, where we are. Um, you know, something that's, that's really encouraging to me is, you know, I read lots of articles about how challenging remote work was for, uh, for elementary school age children, junior high, high school. But there were a few articles about uh, there are certain students who actually benefited and thrived in that environment who were struggling academically before, whether it was because of social anxiety uh, or, or other reasons where a classroom wasn't ideal. And now that we've recognized that that's a need, I think that that need is going to start to be filled by a lot of the existing technologies that have been building for, for years. Um, and a lot of that is is online learning, it's video learning, but it's also more innovative platforms around, um, around how we deliver uh, education. Uh, one of the things that I really hope uh, we start to see is more competency-based education. So, uh, so much of education is, is time-based. That's certainly something that is, that is true in medical school. 
uh, everybody for the most part, except for a few schools, spends two years learning the same uh, material. Um, you know, one of the things that, that Shiv always kind of joked about is, is one of our longer blocks at Hopkins was an eight-week neuroscience block. Um, and before, before I went to Hopkins, I, I did a PhD in neuroscience. And so that eight-week block for me was kind of just an eight-week vacation. <laughs> But, but I could have been spending it on something else if there had been some way to test out, to test my competency. And maybe I would have spent, you know, those eight weeks studying microbiology where I needed more help, right? Um, so I could have balanced uh, where I really needed to focus um, if, I, if the tech had been there and the curriculum had been designed around that. How do we change that then? Or what would you suggest in terms of, obviously, this is where you, you mentioned, like, you're, you're hoping we get to that point. But what do you think needs to be done or opportunities for startups to do something about it? Like, I would love to hear more about how you kind of think through that or what might be done possibly. I mean, I think the first step is, is like I said, being um, for, for schools to be open-minded about that as a possibility. The tech is there. There are startups and companies, mature companies that are, that are totally capable of delivering competency-based learning. Um, really the, 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 the next step is, is the will to put that into place and to totally change, you know, the traditional model, uh, which for a lot of people is, is understandably very scary. Um, but recognizing that the, the, the technology is there, I think is, is the first step. Osmosis can drive competency-based learning, uh, as it exists right now, because students can go on the platform, they can watch videos, they can answer questions that judges their, their uh, expertise and competence in an area. And then either, either you use that as, as kind of a formative measure of, of assessment, or you say now they're ready for this, this summative test that they can now test out of, of this and go to the next level. Um, but it does require rethinking the way the curriculum is, is organized. So I think we, we already know the answers for, from, from in the startup community, I think we already know the answers to this. It's just a matter of uh, how quickly do these tools get adopted? Yeah. And, and with that, I know we, we mentioned the B2B side of things and went a little bit deeper on the direct-to-consumer side of things first, but with the B2B, going back to that point, and you went direct-to-consumer first to kind of prove it out, get some data, help you in getting into B2B then. How has that gone in terms of going into B2B education side with the schools, working with them? How did you approach that and how, like from a strategic standpoint, like where to go first, like what level of school you want to get into? Like, I would love to hear more about how you thought about that because that's a huge like piece to crack because there is a long sales cycle and everything as well. Like how has that gone for you? Yeah. You know, with, with B2B, with having a B2C and a B2B model, there's always going to be challenges and tension between those two different stakeholders, right? Um, and you really want to serve the stakeholders of each well, but, but they have different needs. And that's especially true in education. You know, what a student is trying to, trying to do is, is learn and survive the tests, right? Um, faculty have, have lots of other uh, needs uh, in terms of, uh, one, just, just not having something that balloons and takes up their time because they're very, very busy. So they don't want to have extra technology that adds to, they want things to make their lives easier, to make things more efficient. Um, and then they have also have a lot of needs around, you know, in, in aggregates, seeing how their entire class is doing, how, how do they make decisions to optimize their curriculum based on that. Um, one of the things that I think worked out really well for us early on in making that B2B transition is we, um, we went to conferences and started working with faculty who, who would approach us, who are really, I mean, if you think about, you know, the kind of crossing the chasm, the innovators, the early adopters, you know, those, those phases, we really got the innovators early on in B2B. Um, a lot of the professors who worked with us and in many cases have um, uh, become not full-time osmosis employees, but, but have worked with us on research projects in a more full-time or part-time capacity. Um, a lot of those professors were working in, in problem-based learning environments. So uh, already a non-traditional classroom, they were already thinking about how do we, how do we disrupt education, right? Um, now, now that we've kind of proven that out in B2B and, and we we're through kind of the, the innovators and early adopters and into the early majority, a lot of that is just word of mouth. You know, it's, it's professors telling other professors at other schools, osmosis has been great to work with. 
Um, and that's really helped us grow. And, and, I, and not in a way that we could have in the early days when just no one knew who we were or, or what we were doing. Yeah. And, and with that then, so when you look to scale and continue to grow, what does that look like for osmosis in terms of where you kind of prioritize? Again, there being a, a few different ways to go about this. Like, how are you thinking through that side of things? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the best next steps for us, I feel like, is um, expanding into adjacent fields at the same schools because we already have relationships with the schools. One of the other things that uh, you know, when when you're thinking about technology innovation in education, often you're thinking about the educational side of things, but there's also a lot of technical and logistics that go behind the integration with the IT department at the school and all of the regulations that they have, all of those sorts of things. But once you've already been through that once with the school, going from the med school to the nursing school uh, is, is much easier because you already kind of know, know what to expect, right? Um, so expanding into the, the allied health professions at the same school, whether it's physician's assistants or dental schools or nursing schools, that makes the, the most sense for us as a next step. Yeah. And one thing I want to go back to, because I've kind of asked already like, through almost every question is around, I love like hearing how you make decisions because there's so many decisions that need to be made in any startup, obviously. Um, and like, you can go one way or another, you know, just based on your business model and what plan you have for the future. It's like, you know, you have this big vision, but how are you going to get there? But you have a PhD in neuroscience, studied decision-making from what I read. How has that influenced you in your company now with osmosis and how you look at decisions and uh, everything you're doing kind of on a day-to-day basis because you've literally studied that for a lot of time? I'd be curious to know more about how you think through decision-making. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have you know, kind of had that in my, my background. It, it's funny because you, you never really, starting out, you don't really plan to have this trajectory and you don't really know how all the different pieces are going to help you. But that was in, in particular... Um, very, very fortunate. Um, you know, the way I, I ended up on that path, um, when I started out in college, I was very interested in, um, in artificial intelligence. Um, I was interested in how, um, if you look at it, the architecture of computers right now, as, as powerful as it is, it's a very different architecture than the architecture of the brain. Um, and the way that computers process information right now is very different from how the brain processes information. And so one of my very first early interests was okay, I need to learn more about the brain and start thinking about, you know, like how, how does information processing work? How is it different? Um, and that just started, you know, me down kind of a, a, a rabbit hole that I, I didn't expect, uh, but it's been really fascinating. Um, when you're first learning about how machines learn, uh, one of the things you realize is that there's this concept of reward. Uh, so, you know, machines learn uh, in learning paradigms based on like they keep doing a task because because they're getting something that is it is called a reward. It's an objective reward, whether you, you can say it's subjective for, for a machine, you know, who knows? But that, that, that gets you to thinking about how, how people uh, process rewards, right? And so then that gets you into literature around dopamine um, and how, um, how that ends up influencing decisions. Um, so another, another area where I ended up being very fortunate, I got to work with a guy named Wolfram Schultz at Cambridge, uh, who basically, you know, in the 90s, he discovered the neural circuitry behind, you know, everyone's heard of, of Pavlovian conditioning. You ring the bell, the dog salivates uh, to the food, but eventually salivates to the sound of the bell, right? So he basically figured out the neural pathway of, uh, of, of how, that, how that stimulus uh, of, of food is then transitioned to the bell itself being rewarding. And there's a dopamine spike that happens. That, that triggers that. And, and that has created a lot of kind of popular science where we're like, oh, dopamine is the pleasure compound, which isn't, isn't exactly accurate. It's, it's much more accurate to say it's, it's motivation. Um, but at the time he was very interested in uh, behavioral economics. Um, and behavioral economics is kind of, you know, for, for those familiar with it, you know, names like you know, Daniel Kahneman, he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, where he summarized a lot of, of, of his life's work uh, around thinking of, of, of this. But, but some of the early ideas were, um, you know, here, let's take economic theory where we assume people are rational and show how psychology shows that they're slightly irrational. But they're not irrational in unpredictable ways. They're irrational in very predictable ways. And 
a lot of businesses have now used that. I mean, this is kind of the core behind a lot of marketing. Uh, so there's something called the framing effect, right? So we're all very familiar with the framing effect every time we go down the cheese aisle and see 99% fat-free cheese, it's not labeled as 1% milk fat because you're more likely to buy something that's framed positively. Uh, it's very similar if you, if you frame a medical treatment as 99% complication-free versus there's 1% chance of complications. People are more likely to consent to the positive frame. So there's all these hacks that go into, uh, into, into influencing how people make decisions. It's important to understand those that you can kind of notice when, when, you're, when you're being hacked by a marketer, right? Um, but at the same time, it's, it's also important to understand how, um, how, how that works and how that influences uh, people's decisions. So I, I always, you know, back to your, this is a very long roundabout way to, to answer your question. Back to your original question, yeah, how, how to, um, you know, how, how does that influence my decisions kind of day to day at osmosis? Um, you know, a lot of it, I do try to always reflect on how does the brain uh, process this? How does, how does psychology influence these decisions um, that, that people are making when they're, when they're deciding to purchase the product? Um, things around, you know, confidence and knowing that this is the right product for me, knowing social proof, knowing all of this stuff. Um, a lot of this stuff is, is, is very kind of standard once you get into the, the literature around uh, product and marketing um, and, and things like that. Um, but also how do you build a product that, that helps people make better decisions? You know, so for example, not everyone wants to study, you know, um, so one of the things that we, even though, you know, it's, you know, it's good for you, you know, you know, I need to sit down in the library, I need to open a book. Um, so one of the things we did, and this is uh, based on, on the, the research of a Stanford psychologist named BJ Fogg, uh, there's a behavioral model where basically uh, your behavior is influenced by your, your level of motivation, your ability to carry out a task and a trigger that triggers you into that task. Um, med students are very motivated. They, they, they're an extremely motivated cohort to work with. The ability can be easier by making the platform very easy to use. So a mobile app or something that, that, that kind of, you know, they're on the bus. They don't just have to be in the library. Triggers can come in the form of, of push notifications. Um, and so that's something we used very early on uh, to trigger people to, to make better decisions about how often they study and not get into these cram forget cycles where um, they're just waiting until the very last minute. Um, so, you know, I could, I could go on and on about, about this topic, but that's, that's kind of the basic overview. No, it, it's fascinating because like I said, there are so many decisions you're, you're making on a day-to-day -day basis and we don't realize, like, I know I've read like Persuasion by Robert Cialdini and like, there's so many things that you pick up from that book around, oh, this actually goes into influencing behavior and decisions and everything, which then can be used for good or evil. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm just picturing you like negotiating with, with Shiv in some way. You're like just using all these, <laughs> all your data and your, your knowledge. You're like, yeah, I got you again, Shiv. I'm sorry. I got this PhD in this <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> one, one thing I want to go back to, uh, I know we kind of glossed over it, but uh, I was talking about how, you know, obviously raise funding, have assets to allocate towards different things within the company. Take me through that side of things. First time founders raising funding. You ended up raising from like Graycroft and Felicia, so like $6.7 million total. And it could be off depending on if you know Crunchbase or not. But with that, raising capital, how was that process? And I, I ask in this way slowly because I'm thinking of it. And initially, it seems like it's almost like a content play, a media company. But really, then it's more of like subscription and it's a little different. So, how did that fundraising process go in terms of telling your story around what Osmosis was? Yeah, yeah, um, and even also, you know, the, just the decision to make to, to fundraise to begin with. Um, that's something that that as a as a first time founder, a founder in general, I think you you always kind of struggle with because there's this balance of, um, you know, one metaphor that I've heard used is you know, taking venture funding is, is strapping strapping a rocket to your company, right? And so, one of the things with that metaphor that I think is very appropriate is. You don't really get to control the direction too much once you strap the rocket. You need to be pointed in the right direction, um, and so you need to you need to know where you're going. Um, and so, I think the business model that you're that you're starting with really determines the timing of funding. So you know, if you if we had been a company that was if we were selling a free product that uh, you know was going to be getting revenue from advertising and we needed 100 million users, we would have had to. Have 
raised immediately on day one, right? Um, we didn't raise, uh, we raised, we raised seed funding and we've had excellent angel investors through the years. We've raised seed, seed funding. Uh, but from 2012, when we started as a, as a project in a classroom, we didn't raise our Series A until 2019. Um, and we were able to do that because we were bootstrapped the entire time um, and, and also very lean. Um, and a lot of that came from the early B2C revenue that then led into those, those early B2B deals. Um, so we were able to fund a lot of our growth. Now, at some point, we decided, okay, do we actually want to expand into these, these other fields like nursing? Um, and in order to do that, we could keep doing it on the bootstrap track, but you know, when you actually map out the content that you have to build, it's like, oh, it's going to take us four or five years to, to do that. Um, so it makes a lot more sense that, you know, if we can get people excited about our idea, uh, to, to get funding right now and, and, and accelerate that. And so that, that was kind of the decision around that. And then it, and it creates a very easy story. Once you have product market fit, you already have revenue. And you're able to say, okay, now we're expanding to something that's very related. Um, that's that's just a much nicer story for for investors to hear, and much more convincing. Yeah, and there is so much that goes into that. I love that you mentioned like to even raise funding or not. And I think there's a lot of founders who are in a similar position as you, and it's like we could do it without raising funding potentially if you're looking off off of revenue, and it would just take a lot longer to get there. And it's like, you, do you want to strike now while you have? have the opportunity while it is hot and like versus waiting and potentially not knowing what that's going to be as well. And there are different expectations that come along with being venture funded. And again, first time founders, what's been helpful along the way for you, Shay, the rest of the team, as you've obviously have raised funding and have an expectation that comes with that from these top investors, what's been helpful for you along the way of like, okay, how do we think bigger? How do we look at like what this looks like? for an actual exit, like how do you think about that or what's been helpful maybe uh, along the way with that and thinking through the company from the venture side of things? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I kind of had an idea of, but but didn't have a, a clear picture and, and do now and wish wish that I had before just, just to know what to expect was, you know, when, when you're shifting from being a bootstrap company, you're pretty much accountable to your co-founder and your customers. That's that's pretty much it. Uh, when you when you take that step into VC funding, now you have quarterly board meetings. Uh, you're you're accountable to to a totally different uh, stakeholder who also has uh, you know a tremendous amount of experience that you have to kind of combine what they're telling you with the experience they have and and ask to you know kind of be guided toward okay what what is our company going to look like as it grows um, and we I think. On some level, we knew that things would change as we got to be a bigger company, um, but I don't think we fully understood um, all of the all of the changes that that would have to happen as you grow. It's it's not a matter of just being uh, you know two three to three times the size. Once you grow as a company, you have to grow your kind of organizational intelligence. You have to be able to manage really really well. Um, there's all of these things that that were very easy when you were a small company and you could just jump on a call with, with someone you knew versus, you know, now you've got an entire team who's just been here for two months. They don't know, you know, all of the culture. They don't know where all of the things are. You know, there's the lots of training that has to be done. Um, that's a, that's a totally different, uh, experience. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that, would have been helpful very early on, um, and, and we do have now, is bringing in people who have been through that experience before. Um, because there's there's kind of only so much, you, you know, what, what I immediately tried to do is I fell back to my um, to my approach for, for most other things, which is, okay, I, I, I found myself in an area where I lack knowledge. I'm going to read a lot of books. Um, and, you know, so I went through good to great, you know, high output management, you know, measure what matters all of the classics, um, trying to understand what to do. Um, now, looking back on that, I, I kind of think of, there's a, there's a quote from William Osler, who is the founder, one of the founders of Johns Hopkins. Um, and he said that you know, a, a medical student or a doctor who only reads, or who doesn't read books, sails an uncharted sea. Uh, but, but one who only reads books and doesn't see patients uh, doesn't go to sea at all, uh, right? And so really, you know, we were trying, being first time founders, going into to uh you know this this new stage 
we were going to see for the first time. Um, and having somebody on the on the ship who has sailed a few times before, uh, I think is has been really key. And I'm, I'm glad we, we are now to that point where we, we have those people in place. But if I had it to do over again in 2019, day one after after we closed this the series a you know I, I think i would have started recruiting for those roles and and what roles at the company would you have put people in in terms of like people who had kind of been there already because i'm hearing this and being like okay that that makes sense in theory but like where do they go what what roles do you put them in like i'm curious what you would have done in 2019 for the company yeah i mean it, well it's definitely your c level roles and your in your vp roles uh you know are the, are the earliest ones uh you know we, we have a great cfo now uh we waited way too late uh to, to do that because we were managing account balance sheets and all this stuff for, for way longer than, than we really needed to do. Um, similarly, you know, like we have a, we have a COO now, uh, who's, who's excellent, who's, who was a CEO at, a, at another, uh, larger healthcare education company. Um, and we've got a, we've got a great level, a great set of, of VP level, uh, managers now and at the company. And so, so building out that bench, uh, is, is probably the, the single most important thing you can do after after you've finished that fundraising and closed the Series A. Yeah, the, the people side of things, the team is what's going to take it to that next level. And there are so many people who have been there at different startups, and it just gives you an advantage um, over, you know, obviously having not been there yet yourselves. And even people who have been at startups, but then they haven't been at this level of a startup is different. Like as you go, as you move up, you know, you have different expectations going from early stage, pre-seed, seed, to then Series A, Series B. And I've interviewed a number of people before then they get to the next level they may have an executive coach once they get to that series b like there's so many different things on top of that that you get to at that point um it's interesting to hear how people progress through that especially first time founders because once you a lot of times you come a second time or third time founder like you do those things earlier so you obviously you're learning from these not mistakes but just lessons along the way and and with this as well so i know you distribute your company and a lot of people have forced into being a distributed company for the time but like what's been helpful along the way with being a distributed company running the company i mean i, I know there's a lot of different things you have to go through for that but for you guys at, at osmosis what's been helpful for you with being distributed yeah i mean so the some of the obvious things are um flexibility people really like having that uh for for a job for sure um that's from from kind of the employee side of things. From the employer side of things, you're able to recruit talent globally, uh, which is really nice. Um, I I did have one question at some point. Uh, a, a CTO uh, at another company asked me if if we had managed to basically be churning out code nonstop around the clock because we have people as far east as South Africa, uh, from the west coast all the way to South Africa. I said we haven't quite gotten to that to that level, uh, but but it has been really nice uh, to. If something happens with the site at 3 a.m., we've had people in, in London and in South Africa start working on it before anyone else uh, uh, wakes up. You know, I used to get phone calls at 3 a.m., and so that's that's been an improvement there. Um, in terms of, of of how you make a you know a remote company work, um, one of the things I think was really key for us was was having retreats, um, and that was awesome. For a number of reasons one you know you just get to see these people you know in some cases you would work with a person for almost a year before you you meet them in person um but it doesn't feel like you're meeting them for the first time it feels like this person is your friend you know by, by the time you've gotten there and now it's just time to hang out with an old friend uh which is which has been really great um it's also uh been really awesome to just go to different cities and see where different people live so we've we've kind of bounced the retreats around the country based on on you know, at first it was where the most people were concentrated geographically because that was the cheapest plane tickets. Um, but as we've grown, you know, that's that's not really possible anymore. Now it's just, you know, let's pick the pick the most fun city or the new city that that, that no one has been to. Um, so that can be really great. That was, you know, in in, in this last year, we, we've we've fully recognized just how important that is because with COVID, we we haven't had a retreat um, in over a year at this point. Uh, we're about to start them again. Uh, we're really excited about that. Uh, but we really saw how having those in-person sessions um, just it, it goes so such a long way to building trust on the team and and creating like really high functioning teams. Was that was that a yearly thing? Was that a quarterly thing? How are you handling that? I'm just curious on how you functioned with that. Yes, we're doing it twice a year for for various teams. Um, so you know when you're when you're at the founder level. Um, You've got a few more than than just twice a year, but you're going to to multiple ones. Um, 
And, and I, I do think that that's something we haven't fully figured out is, you know, a way to have a company wide retreat at, at our stage. Um, because I think that that would be, you know, actually being able to do that would be really awesome. And there's still people, uh, it, at osmosis that, that, that I haven't met, you know, I've, I've seen people have their, their career stint at osmosis for, you know, two years. And, um, and I, and I haven't met them in person, you know, I, and I'm just kind of seeing them on, on their exit call saying, oh, I had a great experience. And, and now you know, moving on, I'm like, oh, that person seems so awesome. And I, I never got to, to really meet them. Um, but, uh, but having the smaller retreats also uh, has, has been really helpful because you can be very focused uh, and really get to know the people that are on those teams. Yeah, it is a unique thing to go through with not not having met your team or your your coworkers, and you may move on to another role. Like you literally have never met them in person, which is which is wild. That's what my last role was, um, and then this role I haven't met them yet either in terms of the at Vitalize. So like I would love to at some point, and I think it's going to happen. It just depends on timing, of course. Um, that pesky COVID nineteen. On that note of pesky COVID nineteen, you guys move really quickly on educating people on creating content around it. I just want to. I just want to hear more about how that went internally as this situation progressed with COVID. Because obviously you're a medical education company and you have a lot of reach on YouTube, and you guys ended up doing a podcast and a lot of different things. Like, how did that go? Take me through that. Yeah, um, I mean, when we started out, um, it, it was just kind of obvious when 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 COVID first uh, when it was obvious COVID was was a thing, and that people were very confused. Um, you know, as unfortunate as it was, you know, there was no communication from, from, from the top where there could have been, um, about, about COVID and, and what to think about it. And there was a lot of misinformation. And so we said, okay, we're, we're going to start making videos immediately. Um, and so we made, we started with our typical COVID video or our typical pathology video where we explained what COVID was, where we thought it was, where everyone thought it was coming from, what we thought the pathology was, the prognosis, things like that. And then we updated that every month um, as, as new information uh, started coming in. Um, and a lot of us, uh, you know, I shared it on Facebook. I had family and friends saying, thank you. Finally, a video that really kind of explains, you know, the whole, the whole picture. Um, and so that, that was kind of our first step into that. Uh, we also, you know, kind of got, you know, at the time uh, Bernie Sanders was, was, uh, you know, still, still, he was still in the primary. And uh, I think someone on his campaign uh, knew of osmosis, uh, and got in touch with, with Rishi who had worked at the CDC previously, um, had a lot of knowledge around, um, around, uh, pandemics and got on, you know, started talking to, to first to on a few roundtables with Bernie Sanders and a few other experts, and then also on CNN. So we were able to kind of expand that in ways that we didn't expect, um, and, and educate more broadly. Um, we also started the, the, our own podcast, you know, the raise the line podcast, uh, to start talking to other leaders across, uh, across the spectrum from, uh, healthcare company CEOs to hospital CEOs, to educators, um, to better understand how they were, um, were adapting to, to COVID. Um, and that's, that really, I think became the core of a lot of the education that we did, uh, moving forward once, once the knowledge around COVID started to, to stabilize a bit. Yeah, and there's a couple of things within that. So one, obviously, it's just good for the world. So you, you guys are doing the, that content and putting that out there, and that was the intent and to help people. But then I think about what you just mentioned around like interviewing experts and getting their opinion on things. It's like that's why we look at like this show. Like we're gonna we're gonna look at future of work and future of learning at Vitalize. We want to know as much as we can and share as much as we can in those spaces. Distributing content, creating content around that. It, it helps people, but it also educates you. Like it's forced learning. Like you, ha if you're going to do interviews and that, that sort of thing, like it becomes forced learning. You can kind of get like, a lot of different data points from different smart people in different areas of where you're looking at. And I think a lot of different companies could could learn from that. And in, in a way, to whether it be interviewing your potential customers, like interviewing your potential partners, like there's so many ways to go about that. And obviously, a company like Osmosis, where it's a you know a, just content first in terms of how you started, uh, it makes a lot of sense that you use that capability to then help impact your business. And I'm sure that's helped you in, in a number of ways. Obviously, it helped other people, but also helped the company through that as more people hear about you and legitimizes you even more along the way. And, and one of the last things I just want to talk about is what is that, that massive vision? We talked a little bit about it, kind of alluded to it, but the massive vision for osmosis, where do you see this thing eventually being you know, 5, 10, 20 years down the line? 
So, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about competency-based education. Uh, you know, I think that's true uh, in general with, with professional education, but especially in healthcare. Um, so healthcare tends to be a field where you, you kind of have to pick your, your career outcome at the, at the beginning, you know, where, where you're going to, you're going to end up, you know, when you're in college, uh, was a little, a little crazy when you think about it and not how a lot of other careers, uh, careers go, you know, I, there, in my medical school class, there were definitely nurses who, um, who had worked for, you know, 10 years, uh, as, as RNs or NPs and were now decided, you know, actually I, I want to be in, a doctor. That's, that's the role that I want in the healthcare system. And sometimes you don't know what role, and often you don't know what role you, you really want uh, in a job, in a career until you, you've seen it and you've, you've kind of experienced it. And if you had a competency-based system, um, you know, if you were, let's, let's say you, you come in as, as an RN into, into medicine, you work a few years, you build up that knowledge, you're able to use something like osmosis to validate that you do have that knowledge. Maybe you don't go through two years of, of the, the didactics where you have to learn the book knowledge of medical school. You just go directly into your clinical rotations and you can have RNs becoming MDs in two years instead of four. Uh, that's especially uh, relevant now, given uh, that, we, that we're beginning to see kind of the, the shortfall in, in uh, supply around, around healthcare professionals and doctors. Um, so if we want to create, if we want to have more doctors out there, we've got to shorten training. Um, and so I think that, that both the pressure of students wanting shorter training, uh, wanting to be able to make career transitions and just the need from, from the market in healthcare is going to drive a lot of that. And I think that that's, that's, what's really exciting for the future. Yeah. And I think that applies to obviously a lot of different industries as well. Whether you look at tech with the coding boot camps and how that's kind of progressed over time, career karma is helping on that. I always like to plug them because I think they're doing a great job. Uh, there's a lot of different companies that are looking at like on deck, even with how they're looking at educating people, getting them a network in your community, but ultimately helping them in their career, whether it be advancing to that next level, that next step, changing careers faster, like it, being a quicker thing that you should do based on, you know, competency, like you mentioned, is, is really interesting to see how this progresses. And that's uh, something I'm excited for Vitalize, at least to see as we look at different companies, where they're going to go in these, these spaces. But Ryan, this has been a lot of fun. Where can people go to learn more about Osmosis and connect with you as well, if they would like to? Yeah, so either uh, you know searching for our for our YouTube channel uh, for Osmosis and subscribing, or uh, going to osmosis.org uh, directly. Perfect, Ryan. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much, Justin. Hey, Justin here again. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.